You're listening to CardiCast, a podcast about galleries, libraries, archive and museums, brought to you by New Cardigan, an Australian-based glam community. Hello, Cardies. Hugh Rundle here. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Heather McFarlane from the Signet Seed Library in southern Tasmania. Heather talks about caring for communities of humans and plants, cultural heritage relationships, and the mechanics of cataloguing and running a library of seeds. Here she is. So my name's Heather McFarlane, and I live on Malakadi country in southern Lutruwita, and the colonial name for that is the Huon Valley in Tasmania. I live just outside of a town called Signet, and I coordinate the local Signet Seed Library. So I'd like to pay my respects to the Malakadi people and their elders past, present and emerging. Thank you so much for joining us, Heather. Great to have you here. Thank you. So as you said, you are from Signet, beautiful part of the world. Yeah. For our listeners who have no idea where Signet or the Huon Valley are, uh, can you sort of paint us a picture, sort of roughly whereabouts in the world is it and what sort of place is it? Signet is a town. I want to say a number that the population is, but Signet's going through a growth rate at the moment. So Signet's got somewhere over 3,000 people that live in its immediate vicinity. And the Huon Valley itself is also going through a growth rate right now. Signet as a town is on an estuary and it's cold, temperate climate conditions. It's quite an artistically driven town and uh, a lot of, Uh, creative people and artists live in the area as well as a lot of people who've moved here to be more involved in community activities so it's quite a got a lot of gardeners it's got a lot of artists it's got a lot of people who are interested in being involved in community-based stuff yeah sounds like a wonderful part of the world (laughs) yeah it's amazing yeah that's a wonderful introduction to what we wanted to talk about today which is the signet seed library (laughs) so can you tell us about the signet seed library how it got started and uh, what your role is in that yeah so the signet seed library in its current form kind of got started at the beginning of I want to say 2020 right before everything kind of melted and basically what was happening at the time was that Siglet's going through a gentrification process at the moment and that has a lot of ways that it can be seen by the community in a negative way and so because of the way that I like to facilitate community activities I like to take times when change is happening and use that as an opportunity to shift the direction of how things are working. So if all these new people are coming into our town and they're moving here from somewhere else, how do we show those people that this is what this town is about? You know, it's an opportunity for us to say, this is what matters in Signet, would you like to join us? Instead of creating more isolation between people. A seed library is a really easy way of doing that. I like it because it's simple. You don't need to set up a lot of stuff. That was what attracted me to it. And it was also, as far as I could see, one of the best ways to allow for diverse socioeconomic situations and to ensure that all members of our community were being cared for. 
and all members of our community felt valuable. So that's one of the disadvantages of gentrification, obviously, is that when it starts happening, people who are of a lower socioeconomic status than the people who are moving in, they have no connection to those people who are moving in. There's a, there's a divide between them. And also they can't necessarily engage in some of the activities that the people who are of a higher socioeconomic status are. So that just continues to perpetuate. But if we say, well, how do we create it so that those people are in the same room and they care about each other and when they recognise that they're both trying to feed their families and they're both trying to care for the land and they're both trying to find connection, then, then we can have conversations instead of not having conversations, which always ends badly. So I kind of liked the metaphor of a seed. Like for me, seeds are like ideas, you know, that in the right context they grow into something and they don't have to be amazing or big or profound. They can just be a thing that's a, a suggestion of something. So we started the seed library basically as an idea. I was like, what about if we did this? There ha- there's a woman in our community, her name's Kate Flint. She's very in- instrumental in a lot of community stuff that happens here. And she had previously tried very hard to get a seed saving group going. And she just had too much on her plate. She was doing that and crop swap and being involved in a lot of other things. So when I found that out, I said, well, why doesn't that become the thing that I helped to make happen? And that sort of it came out of that. And we had two facilitated group meetings. Anybody who was interested could come. We just had it at my house. And I facilitated those meetings using a range of techniques. I'm a, a permaculture educator. So I used a lot of permaculture education techniques to kind of guide us towards some kind of vision statement, mission statement for what we wanted. I used a book by a woman called Cindy Connor. It's called Seed Libraries and Other Means of Keeping Seeds in the Hands of the People. And that book was the book that helped me to guide how I did those facilitation sessions and a lot of the decisions that came along in those sessions. So collectively we wrote a vision or mission statement for what we wanted for the Seed Library and it's guided us a lot. I kind of wish that at that point... We'd also said, set some guiding principles for what we as a group would consider to be success. So instead of being guided by this kind of capitalist achievement model, if we'd had this thing all along where we were like, well, if these things are happening, we consider this to be successful. I wish we'd done that then. And we'll do it. We're doing it now. But it would be great for us to have that because sometimes when you're still stuck in that ideology when you look at small scale grassroots stuff it can seem really like you're not doing you're not getting anywhere but actually you're doing a lot you're having a big impact you're just having a big impact in a way that isn't measured in these very normalized constraints so then we came up with those things we came up with the ideas of how we would store the seeds and we started the process of figuring out how we would make them available to people and at that point when we were organizing how we would have seeds because that's the challenge of a seed library is that you have to have seeds 
So you kind of need a year to set it up because people need to grow them, grow them out. And that was when COVID hit. And so we were like, oh, my God. And then there were all these seed shortages, right? So suddenly we were like, oh, this is not just wouldn't it be nice if and, oh, let's, like, create opportunities for people of different socioeconomic statuses to intermingle and let's create opportunities for people to share a plate literally and share their backyards. It was like this is food security in a big way, you know, not just a small way. I think that that really helped us to make sure that we had a stock of seed because every single person who'd been at those meetings walked away going, I know why we're doing this on a more literal level, not just a theoretical level. And so through that that winter and into the next summer, we, we all grew seeds and we have a role in seed library called the Seed Steward. That's something we took from Cindy Connor's book. And it's basically the idea that there's somebody who says, oh, look, I'll grow out that variety. So it means that you're not just relying on the community to know how to save seeds and get it all right. And you're having people who are stocking the library because that's their community service. There's one other thing I want to say about how we started the library, and it's probably one of the most important foundational things to why Seed Library works so well, and it's something called willing offerings. So from the beginning, instead of saying, oh, we want to start a seed library and these are the things that it's going to look like, we said, we want to start a seed library. What are people willing to offer towards the seed library? And then we collected that list. And then we designed from that list instead of imposing like a set of ideas of what we needed to happen. And then if there was a problem, like somebody wasn't doing something, then we talked about it. But we actually have never had that problem. So from the beginning, so, for example, I said, look, I will coordinate the fortnightly meetups and I will run the Facebook and the Instagram. And then some of the other people said, I can't regularly come but I'd like to grow out of variety. And there are people who don't have gardens and they just come to pack and chats every time, you know. And so we've got this diversity of gifts that people are bringing to the community and they're saying this is the gift that I'm capable of giving. And, of course, those gifts can shift over time, like if you have children or if you get hurt or whatever. But the beauty of it is it's saying well, what, gifts, what gifts can you give instead of saying these are the only gifts that are welcome. So it is based on a gift economy idea and it helps us to remember that if people aren't willing to do this, then it doesn't work. Everything happened around that stuff. That is a lot of information about how Seed Library started and there's more information that I can talk about, like how we had a local ex-librarian who designed the cataloging system and like how seeds come in and how we record them and how they go out. Oh, my but God. Yeah. I, I, I want you to talk about all of that, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> this, this sounds yeah. even more amazing than I realised it was. Oh, so many, okay, I have so many questions and some only oh some of them I've, I've told you about already. But <laughs> all right, let's dive into a couple of things. I, I think it might be useful just to pick up on a couple of things that you just unpacked for us just a little bit more. <laughs> One, they're kind of related, I suspect, but if you could maybe just 
run through sort of the different gifts people can contribute perhaps or, or maybe we we might think of them as the different roles or the different things people can do as part of the library like how does it work basically yeah and it's also really obvious from the library's website and your social accounts that there's a real like it's a very strong community project so I'm really interested in how you built that community because you know anyone can set up a Facebook page or stick a poster and up on the town hall but that doesn't necessarily mean that you you end up with a really close-knit high-functioning community uh, project yeah yeah okay that's I think they are related too so I might start with the first one and then I'll kind of segue I think so we try very hard not to dictate the kinds of gifts that people can give. We try really hard to, like, encourage people to be creative and say, well, you know, what would you like to give? Some people gift financially. So for a lot of people, we meet fortnightly on a Sunday afternoon. That's not a time that they've got available to come and pack and chat. A lot of our packers and chatters are either people without children or people who are slash people who are retired. So it was by design this kind of opportunity for members of the community who also might be isolated to have an opportunity to get together to just hang out. I think what I really want to impress here is that the idea was that it was very, very simple. It was just saving seeds and sharing them. But when you design community stuff, the whole point is that if you create something really simple that enables a whole heap of other opportunities around it, like one action has multiple beneficial actions for the community, then you're going to create a much more stable community group because you're not saying to people, oh, it needs to be this. You're saying, well, we're just going to do this thing. How would you like to contribute? So financial is one of the ways because we have a few ongoing costs. We try to keep our inputs as minimal as possible. We try to keep the group very nimble. So we don't, I think nimbleness is the core of grassroots. And I think sometimes that can get lost in bureaucracy, unfortunately, which is no one's fault. But we try to keep it not constrained by things as much as possible because it allows it to adapt and adjust, just like seeds. Seeds are the foundation of what we do. So we actually use them as our teachers as well. They adjust and adapt to new conditions. They're better at community than we are. They're better at like working with different kinds of plant people, different kinds of seeds, different kinds of humans, different kinds of contexts. And they adjust over time to varying conditions and they don't judge you. <laughs> We use the seeds kind of as part of that model. So that idea of gifts is like, well, different seeds bring different gifts to the table. Different people bring different gifts to the table. That's how an ecosystem works. That's how a thriving ecosystem works. So, you know, some people are financial. Some people are packers. Some people are growers. And quite a few of our growers are not very people, like they're not really good in social situations, but they like being part of the community in a way that they feel valued in which is really powerful some of our the gifts that we receive are time so like people will give up their time to at the moment where we do a fundraiser and 
bring at a garden market. And so at the moment we've got people growing out seeds for that fundraiser. And then people give their expertise as well. So on the Facebook page or on Instagram, people share knowledge and in, about growing seeds in this particular climate with each other. I think there's that aspect of it as well with that sort of thing where, like, you can actually talk to the person who grew those seeds out last season, you know, in, your, in that Facebook group, you know. It's not this shop far away or somewhere, like, far away. It's that person is, they might be living next door to you or they might be, you know, 20 kilometres away, but they are there. Mm-hmm. So you've got the local... That's that's lots of local context, right? Yeah. Local climate. Yeah. It's the lo- the person who lived down the road who grew it, and it's the local. You're getting together locally. You're building yeah. the local social fabric. Yeah, it's multiple localized economies. That's really like because an economy is just an exchange of energy. So we need to remember that that like we have this definition of the economy and it's a certain thing, but actually an economy just exists to help energies exchange. And when we talk about those things, those are all different kinds of energetic exchange. Does that sort of answer the gift question and start segueing into the it's brilliant. It's the, perf- it's the perfect segue, Heather. So tell, tell me more about this energy exchange that's going on in your seed library. Yes, yeah, so why does it work so well? And I've been thinking about this really hard and I think that the most important thing for people to know is that it works so well because we didn't need it to work really well. We didn't push it. The whole premise of what we did was that it requires the community to want to do it. We can't force them to do it. We can't make this happen. And if it doesn't work naturally or organically, me exhausting myself by doing everything to make create a more sustainable system is actually counterintuitive. So one of the catch cries that we use a lot is that you cannot build resilient systems on non-resilient behaviours. That is why Seed Library works the way it does. And simultaneously in that, there's aspects of it that we always have to remind ourselves of is if next year we don't get enough seeds or we don't have people showing up to pack and chats that doesn't mean we weren't successful that's back to that success thing it's like success of something like this might mean that after five years it it doesn't work like that anymore or something else supersedes it or or people start doing something else or it loses momentum and that's how grassroots has to operate if we, if we keep trying to make models work that no longer work, then we end up with a system like what we are all living in right now, right? So that's part of that letting go of the need to control a situation. You know, seeds don't try to control the ecosystem around them. They try to contribute to make it better. They contribute to make it more healthy. And... If we think about it in that way and we check our own behaviours when we're engaging in community activity and trying to build community groups, that's a big part of what we have to be mindful of. We have to acknowledge that our own indoctrination about like needing to control things or needing them to look a certain way or having to work in this particular way is part of the thing that's holding us back. 
we have to make mistakes. We have to try things and be prepared for them to fail. We have to do all that stuff because as we're moving into food security crises and climate emergency and all of these things, we need to try different things and we need to not rely on one of them. We need diverse things that all work together and interact with each other just like an ecosystem because we know that ecosystems as the blueprint of a resilient system should be our model. Like for me, ecosystems are my model. They're like they can survive difficult events. They always pushing for the most thriving version of themselves, you know, And we humans, we can get caught in overthinking it and trying to make it something else or modelling it on something else without even realising it. So the reason why it works is because people want it to work, but also because people have accepted that it might not. It runs on a very small core number of people as well. This is important to realise that, like, even though we've got a lot of people in the Facebook group and we've got a big follow, quite a big following on Instagram for a community group. Seed Library is 10 to 15 people who meet regularly. That's, that's it. But the reach of those people, you know, when I think about, for me, unpacking my own indoctrination about what is an important person or what makes something valuable, you know, when you detach capitalism from something being valuable, suddenly what that means changes. <laughs> Because value in our culture is intrinsically related to money. Like what will somebody pay for this? But if you're not doing that, if you're existing in a non-monetary system, like any kind of library, then you have to examine what you want value to mean. So what I really like about the model of seed library is that those 10 to 15 people, you know, most people in Australia are never going to know those people's names. They're not important people. Their work isn't valuable in the model that we have of what denotes importance. But those people made sure that hundreds of people last year in our community had fresh greens in their garden. Like, that's huge. Like, the value of that is incomparable to most things that I can think of. And that those people are very important, therefore, to the way that other people in the direct community are able to live their lives and feed their children and themselves and nourish the soil and give back in reciprocity. So I think that in answer to your question, I don't think there's any one thing that makes Seed Library work so well. I think that it's, first of all, we're very lucky to live in a community who wants to be community orientated. We've got a large group of people who are very interested in that. But also, Seed Library works because people find joy in reciprocity and there's something that is rewarding beyond any kind of money when you can give back to your community in a way that your community wants, in a consensual reciprocity. It's awesome to have somebody say, I put some seeds back in the library this week. You know, like (laughs) the look on their face. So cool. Uh, Yes, they're excited to be contributing uh, back to something that they, they they probably grew those seeds from, from the seeds they picked up last year, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, 
I could talk to you all day about this, Heather. <laughs> I know. This is amazing. You were like 25 minutes. I was like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. This is going to be a longer episode, folks. Strap in. <laughs> I do want to delve more into a number of things about libraries. But before we do that, I just want to pick up on your point uh, earlier about variety and ecosystems because one of the big things for seed libraries and and you know seed saving initiatives is is around this idea of heritage seeds and seeds as cultural heritage so many of our listeners probably buy their fruit and veg from a mainstream supermarket and would be used to seeing you know the white potatoes and the red potatoes or or you know two varieties of pumpkin or whatever for a seed library you're all about you know open pollination and and um, lots of varieties so can you maybe explain for our listeners I guess how that works why that's important and I guess seeds seeds as as cultural heritage right which is um, we we talk about cultural heritage a lot in in the glam sector but this is a slightly different type of cultural heritage yes you uh, sent me a question beforehand, a little bit about cultural heritage, and I was like, wow, this is a topic within seed saving that can just become like it's its own juggernaut because of all the intricacies of it. So one of the things that I want to say about cultural heritage with in relation to seeds is that my own journey with seed saving has been quite a, a process of decolonisation in and of itself. And a lot of the ideas that we hold around seed keeping uh, denote us as the possessor of the seed and the seed as a thing that we possess for our own benefit. But a lot of non the more Indigenous cultures across the world have quite different definitions of what cultural heritage means. And I think that when I was thinking about this, I think the best way to explain it is that our culture is very thing heavy. So we have a culture where linguistically we're very focused on nouns. And that is because English is a merchant language, a language that was developed for trade. So things became very important because I needed to be able to describe which thing and what was the bartering thing. That So literally we developed a language for capitalism. So that's really important to understand about English. When you move into other languages and you start thinking, well, how does just the shift of language happen? A lot of this journey for me started when I read Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wilkimera, and she talks about learning the language of her people, which was Potawatomi, and how it was a very verb-based language and it was about relationship rather than thing. And so I like to think that one of the shifts that culturally would be very useful for us to make um, and that seeds enable, which is why I think they're so powerful, is to shift from a, a cultural heritage fixated on things to a cultural heritage that's fixated on relationship. Because when I am in relationship with a seed, the seed has its own beingness and it has its own right to consent. And it is also a teacher as much as I am a teacher. So I am learning from it and it is in relationship with me. And that changes the dynamic of seed saving because when I'm saving seeds with a plant that I'm in relationship with, 
that I consider to be a friend or kin or, you know, something that I, something or someone that I respect instead of something that I'm using to get stuff that I want, which is that exchange concept that exists a lot in our culture. It changes the kind of idea of what cultural heritage can be around seeds and why we might grow them. I really recommend anybody who's starting on this journey to just go and have a look at a few diverse voices on that kind of topic because once you start unpacking and unravelling, it, it, it's not necessarily about one thing being more true than another thing. It's more about understanding how the way we are interacting with information is a certain filter and to start changing how we think so that we can start creating a more a better solutions for how we interact with our environments we need to have access to different ways of thinking about those environments and ourselves in those environments yes in relation to cultural heritage i would say that there's a lot of cool stuff out there about you know plants as family a lot of uh, first nations people consider plants to be their family Rowan White, who was the seed keeper, she's a Mohawk seed keeper, and I really recommend checking out her work. She is prolific and amazing. She, I did a mentorship program with her before I started the seed library, and it was about this kind of, there was a lot of stuff, it was a lot of uh, scientific stuff about how to make sure that you're saving seeds that are that variety and all that stuff, but also there was about how we relate to seeds. And... She talks quite a bit in one of the sections about this idea that, no, in her culture, they believe that a long time ago, the corn and the people, the corn people and the, the human people, they made a covenant and that that covenant would be that they would look after each other, that they would look after each other's descendants. And so they domesticated each other. They said, well, I will look after you if you will look after me. And so for me, that is that beauty of, of seeds. It's like when you hold seeds in your hand, you are simultaneously connected to your ancestors and your descendants because by saving a seed, you are ensuring the nourishment of future generations who could grow from that seed, but also you're only able to save that seed because your ancestors, or in our case quite often somebody, a farmer, saved that seed. So it's only possible. And even if the farmer did save that seed, that seed had to have come from somewhere originally, and a lot of that time that did come from ancestors of First Nations people. So in terms of cultural heritage, to me there is no greater cultural heritage than that and the cultural heritage is the seed, but also the relationship to the seed that people have and how the seed becomes the culture. That it is the embodiment of what that culture is about and the connection between all things, all living things. So I think it's a really beautiful way to start thinking about like how we relate to seeds. Then in relation to the notion of diversity and how important diversity is and the maintenance of diversity, a lot of people who do have to, for a variety of reasons, shop at supermarkets and are therefore, by the way, incredibly 
vulnerable to food security issues. They won't necessarily be aware of all of the political and economic and social decisions that have gone into that particular pumpkin being on the shelf. But what happens is when you start making decisions about what is available for consumers based on a capitalist model as opposed to a different model that could be a, an ecosystems model, for example, you continue to phase out seeds that do not do the things that are the most efficient for the capitalist model. And the capitalist model is all about efficiency. So what a grower wants is something that lasts for a really long time on the shelf, something that looks uniform and something that produces heavily. So those are the three things that are most commonly what we select seed for. But none of those things have anything to do with nutritive value or taste or diversification of context, which is one of the most disturbing of all of those. Uh, I find both of the other two disturbing, but I find what is most disturbing is that as time has gone by and we've whittled the seeds that we grow out down to a very narrow number of things, we have disallowed changing conditions to happen. And now we're living in a time where conditions are changing very rapidly and we no longer have those seeds that grow well in slightly brackish soil or that are really good and drought resistant or that grow well if the soil's really wet or grow well in clay soils. That, that was part of the point of having the diversity of corn or potatoes or pumpkins slash squash that have been grown out in a lot of the Americas. You know, they ensured that if there was a potato blight, for example, a potato famine, that people didn't starve, that if there was a 10, 20, 100-year period in which the climate conditions were different, that people could still eat. And, you know, that kind of deep time conceptualization, which is like embedded in that kind of seed saving of, I don't need everything to stay exactly the way it is for me to know that my descendants are going to be looked after, is not really evident in our very like productive efficiency based models of how we interact with plants as a, essentially an action of mining because that's really what we're doing when we're farming in this way. And by the way, this is no criticism of agriculturalists because they are shoehorned into this position because there is a requirement that they produce a certain amount of food to feed a certain amount of people and that that land is maximised in a certain amount of way. And, and it is the cost of farming is continuously going up and yet we continue to pay certain kinds of prices that are not necessarily reflective of that until there's a massive scarcity, like what we're seeing right now with like lettuces being $11 or whatever. That's a scarcity issue that's directly tied to climatic events. So we don't have lots of different kinds of lettuce that people are confident with growing and or eating because we focused on three varieties. And now that's what we grow. And so if those aren't available, there isn't anything. 
So, yeah, so we've kind of created this bottleneck of seed varieties and open pollinated and heritage seeds are really important to grow out for that reason because it means that we've got diverse seeds that grow in diverse contexts and that if they're being grown out every single year, they are adjusting and adapting to changing climatic conditions, which right now is very, very important. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> I, I, I could take us on a segue the fact that those three varieties of lettuce, you know, we they're all grown in the Lockyer Valley and, and nowhere else so this time of year, which also contributed. But let's let's, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> thank you. That was an excellent explanation. I, I want to just steer us in a slightly different direction now because I did want to talk to you about libraries. We've talked a lot about seeds. And you've got a seed library going on down there in Signet. So yeah. one of the things I, I warned you, I wanted to ask you about, Heather, was this question of, of why a library. So you could, have, you could have called it a seed exchange or a seed savers club or the Signet Growers Association or, or anything like that, but you didn't. You called it a seed library. Um, yeah. So, so what, why a seed library? What is it about a library that you thought was important? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think first and foremost, one of the things that I understand about cultural change is that you need some things that are familiar for people to be able to move towards shifting their attitudes and values. So you can't question everything all at once. You've got to give people some kind of familiar pathway to be able to make sense of the shifts that they might be making and also to give them an opportunity to make shifts themselves rather than dictating the shifts that they need to make. And for me, that's what the word library helps us to do. First of all, the relationship with a library is a completely non-monetary one. You know, maybe someone has to pay a, a fine or a a membership fee maybe at the start, but usually not. Usually a library is a publicly owned idea of something being held in common and everybody being able to benefit from that if they choose to. And so that language around that and also that notion of relating to a common collection of something is a language that I thought, well, that's really useful. It's also a very common concept across the world that people use the term seed library there are seed exchanges there are seed communities there are other languages but you know it was it's a, about the common aspect of that so that name being in common with other people so you now know that that other group is also doing something a little bit like that but also it's giving us a, a structure to enable us to introduce other kinds of ideas using a format that people are relatively familiar with. Yeah, I think that's primarily why we focus on the concept of library yeah, because no, of the cultural, yeah, the cultural associations with it. It's, uh, I guess it's what you were saying earlier, you know, like don't, don't overthink it, make it familiar to people, make it easy, to, easy, low barrier to entry. If you want to mm. participate, people kind of know. Yeah, roughly what they're getting themselves into if they if they're joining a library. Yeah, yeah, I kind of like that idea of. I suppose for me, I think well, if it's a library, then I'm only borrowing the seeds, right? 
I have yeah. to take I, I, I have to take my loan back. <laughs> so yeah. there's that aspect as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's it is it is it has reciprocity built into the system. Mm. And mm. it's like the system itself is incredibly simple. You know, like a library is really simple. There are some parts that could be a bit complicated, like do you give, you know, cards and how do you keep track of people's borrowings and things like that. We've kind of stripped all that stuff right back. We, we don't keep track of a lot of those sorts of things because we don't need to at the moment. It's not so big that we have to do that. But the reciprocity is actually built into what you're doing. It's like you're going to take something, but you're going to give it back. And in that process, the taking and the giving back, a whole bunch of really nutritive and nourishing things happen. So the first one is that your family or you probably are going to eat some highly nutritious food because for the vast majority of plants, you can eat them even if you're saving the seed. The second is that you're going to be contributing to a bunch of really positive things in terms of education in your household. So if you're doing it with your kids, everybody's learning to save seeds. You know, like in order to save seeds, you have to learn how to save seeds. And the consequence of that is that throughout our community, whether through some of the skill shares that we hold to, to show people how to save seeds or because people can access YouTube or resources on our website people are learning how to save seeds a group of people across the Huon Valley are re-familiarizing themselves with something that everybody used to know how to do and it is absolutely mind-blowing to me how many things everybody used to know how to do in our society that nobody knows how to do anymore things that are fundamental to our ability to continue to thrive on this planet and one of those is seed saving but there's a whole list of them so there's that that yield. I call them yields because I'm a permi. So the yields are that people get to eat, people get educated, people get community interactions because they're learning about how to save seeds from other people. And also there's a bunch of like carbon sequestration stuff and, you know, ecosystem building stuff, environmental benefits that are happening as a direct consequence of people growing these seeds out. Soils are becoming healthier and ecosystems are becoming more diverse and vibrant and more plants are being grown. So there's this kind of many things are happening just as a consequence of something that is a reciprocal behaviour of I'm taking this and then I'm giving it back. Yeah. Yeah, wow. All right. <laughs> well, look, I've, I promised not to take up too much of your time. So I, I really just have two very quick last questions. You, Go. Uh, you promised earlier to tell us about your qualified librarian who's organised your C classification system, and I reckon our audience would be quite interested in that. Yeah. And then I just wanted to ask about, you know, seeds have in recent years, for actually all the reasons you've been discussing, become a bit of a latest trend in more established, you know, public libraries with government funding and that sort of thing. And I guess I'm interested in your any thoughts you have on, on that? You know, is it a good thing? Is it better to do it a different way? You know, do you have a relationship with Libraries Tasmania? You know, those sorts of things. So firstly, I'll talk about Alita, who was our ex-retired librarian. So we, you know, 
bunch of idealistic community orientated kind of crew coming together trying to the best kind nut of out, yeah trying to nut out how we would organize this system of things coming in and us because there's a there's a few things with you know just like at a normal library you know like when a library when you're choosing what books to buy or when you're choosing when you're looking at books that are returning you know what sort of are they still in the same condition that they there's a couple of things like that where you kind of are like well how do we regulate this you know without over regulating how do we make sure that if something's coming in we know that that's going to grow that thing because seeds can cross pollinate very heavily so how will we take the information without it feeling intrusive or make people scared you know because they've saved seeds for the first time and they didn't want to mess it up and then how will we keep them and how will we get them at, back out again so really that the entire seed library was designed around those core things we were like let's just keep it down to these core things we know that we need to be able to get seeds in and we need to know that when those seeds are grown that they will grow what we say they grow we need to store them and we need to store them in a way that is going to make sure that they are not getting damaged and that while they're being stored, we know the core information that we need to know about them. And then we need to be able to get them back out to people and when those people are getting those seeds, have the information, that, that the minimum amount of information that they would need to be able to grow the seeds and have success. And so... We had this ex-librarian who was not, you know, that kind of coming from that kind of world who's quite um, precise and exact and all these wonderful things that we really needed. And she developed a cataloging system for us, some of which we still use and some of which we uh, have pulled back on because as we used it, we were like, okay, these are the bits we need, 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 and these are the bits that it's too time consuming to be able to do and it's not actually contributing to the process and so she designed with us we all designed like a registration form for like when seeds come in this is currently being adapted because we've been using it and now we know what we need you know as we use something we figure out now this works well this way but recording the information of the person who's bringing the seed in and it also gives us their contact details. So if we need to ask any kind of questions about, oh, you grew some broccoli, were you also growing kale? Because we're very excited about that broccoli kale that we're going to be growing next year. You know, we never say no to seeds. That's the other thing. So if somebody does give us seeds and we think, oh, that's not going to be what they say it is, yeah. we have things you, that we do you with just them. give it a different label <laughs> yeah we just turn it into microgreens a lot of the time yeah great for edible leaves so yeah so that that comes in and that gets documented then we've got a system for putting it onto the jars that we keep and we've got a shelving unit that the uh Huon valley council provided a, a donation for us to get and then that shelving unit is done with different sections so the stuff coming in that hasn't been organized and labeled and then the labels go into a filing system so that we've got the like depth of information that we require so that that's where the grower's email is that's where any information we might need about like where it was grown or what year it was grown so that we kind of know 
why isn't this growing very well? Oh, well, that year it was really wet. So this is a good seed for really wet years. Like maybe we should hold that back and keep it for a wet year. And also just any kind of information about the experience level of the grower as well. And that the jar just gets a label on it that just says the basic information and also how many seeds of that we're going to put in a packet so that so that anybody can come along to a pack and chat and be able to do this. And then so we're actually, it's so interesting because we're right in the middle of, we started with the Bare Basics and we run, ran it and now we're taking all the information from that Bare Basics and we're starting to like more design, design better elements to make the system work better. So we, we had that registration form and we had these stamps for our envelopes and we're just shifting some of the stuff and some of the information on that. We're going to get a new stamp made because we've had a donation. That will work even better with the registration form so that the registration form and the seed packet are more comparable and, and directly relate in terms of where the information is. So the registration form and the seed packet and the sticker. So the sticker gets that information and then the information on the sticker just basically goes onto the seed packet. And then we also only put seed packets into the library when you can plant the seed now. So we don't, we don't put things in there that people, because our assumption from the beginning has been, let's assume that this person has never grown anything before. If they have grown something before, it's then that's just great. about to say that would be so helpful for me because I would just, I just stick it in the ground, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> if it didn't do well, you would assume you did something wrong. Exactly. You know, and then you wouldn't do it again. So we're trying to maximize the uh, likelihood that someone's going to have success and feel that joy of growing. And so we put things in the library that can be grown now and that's what we do at our pack and chats. So our pack and chats are the process of moving things from donation into the library and they've got a really easy format and because we've got these sort of systems in place, it means that someone can come along and literally just be like, hey, can you just write a bunch of these? This is the jar. Can you just do a bunch of those into seed packets? And it's, there's very little that, that needs to be explained for somebody to be able to do that. You know, because nobody wants to come along to a community event and feel stupid. So this whole thing is about making people not feel stupid. It's no, it's no, it's not people's fault that they don't know how to grow things from seed, and it's not people's fault that they don't know how to save seeds, and it's not people. This is just a cultural thing that has happened, and we are moving past it because it is empowering to be able to do those things. So yeah, that's what happened, and it's great. We have a place to store our seeds that's really cool. That's also really important. Having storage facilities matters. So that was the wonderful woman who helped us organise our systems, who was an ex-librarian. And in relation to what was your second question? I guess any thoughts you have on seeds as part of a broader library collection, I guess is maybe a way of thinking about it. Yes. So when we were first starting the library, the decision about where we put the library is actually a whole discussion that Cindy Connor talks about in her book. And one of the things she talks about a lot is obviously that public libraries are a really great place to start because they're a public meeting place. They're one of the last public like town square kind of concepts, which we don't have anymore, somewhere where it's free for people to go where they can interact with a common, something that's held in common. And so 
the disadvantage that we had with that was that our local library is quite small because we're quite a small town. Pewinville, which is about 20 minutes away from Signet, has the main Pewin Valley Library. But because we were making a local group, the Signet Seed Library, would it didn't make sense for us to have the outlet all the way there when we were meeting here. So I did talk to the librarians at the time and they, re they actually just didn't have the space to put a thing. And the other drawback was that at the time, it's not true anymore, but at the time that library had quite uh, varied hours. Like one day it would be open, you know, 10 till 8. And on another day it, wouldn't, it would be open. It was just there were lots of different hours and they often weren't open on weekends and they still aren't often not open on weekends. So for us that was like, oh, well, this is only going to reach this demographic of people. That was the drawback. Not just like it needs to be somewhere where people don't need to pay to get in there, but also like physically can can anybody access this or is this a space that people associate with somewhere they not don't feel safe is another whole thing. So in the end, we actually have had it for the last two years on one of the local Indigenous corporation buildings, verandas which also has wheelchair access and also is a safe space for local Indigenous people because we wanted to make that clear that this was actually for everybody. At the moment, we're kind of going through the process of whether, because that space is sort of changing how it's being used, it, it was a bit of a community hub for a while that was being used by a diverse number of groups and now it's sort of changing a bit more back to offices. So now we're going through the process of like, well, maybe it could be somewhere else. And again, we've sort of looked at the library, but we've still got those same core issues except for the hours, it's still not open on the weekends. So, and it's a very sunny spot where we might put it and we can't have sun. However, I have recently had a conversation with some of the librarians in the Huonville Library about that kind of relationship and it did sound like the Libraries of Tasmania direction that's going in now is like the kind of space that would be very interested in some kind of relationship like that. I'm not disinterested in it. I just not, that's not the work that I have the time for right now to set up those kinds of relationships because I have a baby and like currently the model that we have is working okay so I don't want to mess around with it too much as you sort of alluded to there's pros and cons of being involved with an organization there are a lot of pros but also potentially you can lose some of your nimbleness because you kind of have to and also you do potentially make more work for somebody who's at the library because our seed library is it's a standalone thing there's nobody there you know, you can't ask someone questions, but if something's in a library, it might kind of suggest that, you know, you can ask the librarian uh, about yes. it. The, li the librarian is now expected to be a horticultural yeah. expert as, yeah. as well as yeah. a bibliophile and, and all the rest of the things that people expect librarians to be. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I think it is a, a good space. I, I think like a library of any kind belongs in, a publicly accessible space and I feel like 
as long as it's in a publicly accessible space, it's operating as a library. If it's yeah. in a library, then that's perfect, but it could equally be at the front of a CWA building or ours is probably going to go out the front of our local bakery. Oh, perfect. Mm. You can go in and grab some custard buns or something while you... <laughs> While you're picking up your seeds, perfect. And and of and of course, you know, it goes back to that the diversity of the library ecosystem, right? Yeah. You, you don't want yeah. all of your library stuff in the one place. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, look, I think that's probably a good place for us to end. Thank you so much, Heather. That was thank you amazing. We will we'll put some links uh, in the show notes to those couple of books you mentioned and also the Signet Seed Library. Is there anything else you wanted to say to our listeners or or is there any advice you can give them if they're uh, sort of, they've been inspired by your your seed library yeah. story? Yeah, I um, actually wrote it down and this was the, the first big moment for me when I realised this, which is, you know, as we start to step away from normalised ideas. It can be really hard to let go of a couple of things, but as I started seed saving, I realised that the best way to save a seed is to grow it. It's not to store it somewhere else because in the process you also get so much other benefit, but also that seed is adapting. So the best way to save a seed is to grow it and the best way to store a seed is to share it. It's not to keep it away from everybody and, you know, only this person knows what to do with it because that's how you create food security and community. So those are my two things that I always try to remind myself of whenever I feel like, oh, we can't let this one go because it's really special and we're going to try and grow it out. It's like, come on, the best way, oh, the best way to save a seed is to, is to grow it and the best way to store a seed is to share it. Yeah, those are my two core things that I, the principles of Seed Library and that one that I mentioned earlier, which is we can't build resilient systems on non-resilient behaviours. Brilliant. So much there. Relevant literally, but also lots lots for us to think about metaphorically there <laughs> as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Heather, and um, good luck with the Seed Library. Thank you. Thanks for listening, folks. If you'd like to get in touch with New Cardigan, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook or at our website, newcardigan.org. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Remember to like and subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. If you want to know more about New Cardigan, check out our website for events, merchandise, news and more. And remember, folks, JFDI.